Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Itamar Theodore about a brand new fascinating contribution to the field of Hindu studies called the Bhagavad Gita, a critical introduction. Welcome back to the program, Itamar. Very happy to be here. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Um, Given that we're all on Zoom in different time zones, I've realized that the ancient Indians came up with Namaste for Zoom. Because, you know, you can't say good morning, you can't say good (laughs) afternoon, (laughs) you can't say good evening. We'll just say namaste because then (laughs) it's across the board, (laughs) the wisdom of the rishis. Anyhow, um, you, uh, you know, uh, tell us how this, this, this came about. How did this book came about? Um, And also maybe in tandem, you can answer organically the Bhagavad Gita, a critical introduction. I mean, certainly there's no shortage of books written on the Bhagavad Gita. Certainly there may not, there's no shortage of books, uh, introductory material on the Gita. So in tandem, tell us how this project came about and really what is, what is the, what is the niche that you're hoping to fill with this volume? Well, uh, as opposed to my other books, uh, which were my own initiative, in this case, the initiative came from a publisher, Rutledge. They saw the need uh, for a critical uh, introductory volume on the Bhagavad Gita. So much was published on the Bhagavad Gita. Some say it was uh, overpublished. Uh, but uh, still, they, they thought that uh, there should be an introductory uh, volume covering various aspects. And uh, actually, they, they approached me and asked me whether I would be willing to uh, do such a volume. So that is, that's the truth. Once, once, once they uh, made that offer, well, I was very happy about it because I really thought there's a scope for such a book, uh, bringing together uh, more or less these various aspects uh, as, 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 as the book uh, includes really. Uh, of course, I also think that uh, there, there's room for uh, other books in the future but that's another thing. This is a, a critical introduction, as it uh, as it names the notes. It's an introductory book. It aspires to encompass the the main topics, the main non-topics of the Gita. Of course, there could have been more, but that's the main categories, the main topics for which the Gita is known: uh, philosophy, gurus, national uh, <clears throat> involvement, and, and so forth. We will probably discuss that uh, in more in deeper detail uh, later. Yeah, we definitely will. Maybe uh, another sort of uh, what I call 30,000 foot view question might be, you know, who would be interested in this book? I mean, I I personally, I, for example, teach folks intro epics, uh, ethics, even the Bhagavad Gita. And for me, for example, this would be a great teaching tool, I think, to assign some of these chapters. But I'm I'm wondering, without putting words in your mouth, like, who do you think would most benefit or resonate with this volume? Well, First of all, uh, teachers, professors, university courses, uh, that book uh, <clears throat> supplies the main topics of the on the Gita. Uh, but then uh, also uh, general readership, people are interested in the Gita, there are much uh, Gita editions coming. And also in the book, it's, it's apparent that the Gita is, is published time and again and uh, commented upon time and again. Actually, since Shankara's time, it's uh, been 
commented and various editions came out. And surprisingly, each one is slightly different from the other as, uh, as is, is apparent from Arvind Sharma's uh, chapter. There's no one interpretation, so many interpretations. The Gita is very flexible. You have some more mystical interpretations, some more political, some more philosophical, uh, argumentative. I mean, Advaita against uh, Vishishta, Advaita and Dvaita, philosophical uh, in con controversies. Uh, you have uh, uh, commentaries uh, into uh, uh, by Muslim uh, thinkers, uh, medieval Muslim thinkers, uh, who translate and comment upon the Gita uh, uh, in Persian. You have vernaculars, uh, Marathi, uh, Odissi, I mean, everything, so many versions. And uh, surprisingly, each one is different than the other. I mean, you can't find one correct, one uh, absolute interpretation. Just so many interpretations and directions and uh, uh, topics to be emphasized. So the Gita is a, is a, a an object of a, of reading. It's an attractive object of reading. And so far, it's continuing. I don't see it stopping. I just see its popularity growing. It's, it's one of these, these masterpieces of world literature that are inexhaustible in their ability to comment on the human experience, in their ability to teach us. And whether we're looking to be taught about culture or about spirituality or about uh, India, in, in the grand sense, Hinduism, say, it, it's, it's a rich work. And, I, you know, I really think I think the enterprise or the project of the Gita is to fold together these various strands. And because it's so textured, it can readily be, you know, various uh, readers or thinkers will focus on the piece that most resonates. You know, Ramanuja will say one thing about the Gita, Shankara will say one thing, and these are people in a very relatively specific world, worldview, culture, enterprise, as, as, as maybe theologians we can call them. Um, but, you know, the, it's a rich text and, and there's a number of ways in which folks can read it. And when you're providing a critical introduction, certainly there are certain methodologies or certain aspects that you are aiming to, 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 aiming to set up. Uh, so I don't know if we want to do this uh, systematically or not, but maybe you could talk a little bit about the contributions or, or what comes to mind in terms of some of the different kinds of methods or contributions in the volume? Well, I would say that some, some uh, chapters would be more uh, historical. Uh, I would say, like, for example, Arvind Sharma's uh, methodology would be historical. He would survey uh, tens and tens of uh, commentaries and, uh, and translations and editions, uh, compare them, categorize them, uh, he would uh, uh, categorize them in, uh, in terms of uh, uh, chronology, but also in terms of uh, philosophy and uh, ideology. So that would be more, I would say, uh, uh, I, that would be more uh, historical. Uh, but then we have uh, chapters which are more uh, theological. I would say that my own work uh, is more uh, theological in that I try to look at the structure of the Bhagavad Gita. It's actually doing theology, doing uh, the theology of the Gita, uh, dividing the various layers, the various uh, tiers, uh, the ladder of values. And that would also be true, uh, perhaps for uh, Joseph O'Connell's uh, chapter, where he looks into a uh, Gaudiya Vaishnavism and it's um, ambivalent. 
relations to the Gita. Uh, on the one hand, wanting to adopt the Gita because that's Krishna's words and Bodhi uh, Vaishnavism, they worship Krishna and that would be an uh, object of veneration. But then their ambivalent uh, understanding of uh, both karma and dharma, and specifically varnashama uh, dharma. Is it good or is it bad? Is it material? Is it external? Uh, does it distract one from uh, devotion, from bhakti uh, to Krishna? Or is it uh, useful for that? Uh, this is actually an argument within the tradition. They are not sure. And as such, only about a century and a half after the demise of uh, Sri Chaitanya, uh, you'll get the first uh, Gita commentary by Vishwanath Chakravarti, who is, in, in a sense, uh, one of the focuses of this book, uh, perhaps, uh, the connecting uh, axis. So, um, yeah, that, that would be more uh, theological. Then you have... Then you have chapters which are more, I would say, cultural. Cultural, for example, uh, Richard Davis's uh, chapter about the Mahatmyas, Gita Mahatmyas, where the uh, treatment of the Gita uh, is not as a philosophy or as a text, but as a religious object in itself. <laughs> the Gita itself, the reading of the Gita, the writing of the Gita, that in itself is a religious uh, ritual. And your own chapter, your own chapter is also that category. You look into the cultural aspects, how uh, within the text, different uh, epithets, different names are applied to both Krishna and Arjuna. And you divide them into groups, uh, patronyms, uh, and, and, and in other groups, and consider that Achuta would be the main uh, the main, perhaps the purest, the most uh, influential, or the, 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 the most uh, uh, essential uh, epithet. So I would say that that is more of a, a cultural, a cultural a, a methodology. Uh, or return to the historical one, perhaps uh, looking at uh, G. Lulin's uh, uh, chapter about the gurus. That would be more, uh, I don't know, a uh, sociological, uh, dividing the various gurus, uh, looking at the various gurus, what do you try to promote, which kind of uh, values and ideas and doctrines. And also uh, Jim Ryan's uh, chapter about uh, the national leaders is similar in dividing and looking into the national leaders, specifically Tilak, uh, Sri Aurobindo and Gandhi, and what they did with the Gita, actually quite opposing. I mean, Tilak, and Aurobindo is one thing, and uh, Gandhi is something completely uh, different, promoting nonviolence, ahimsa. So uh, yeah, so the, the various uh, methodologies. It's not, it's not only a one one-sided. It's not only comparative theology. It's not only philosophy. It's not low. It's not only history. Not only sociology. Not only cultural studies, but. But we try to, to get the various aspects, and as the name uh, goes, it is an introductory, critical introduction. We look at the Gita from a critical point of view, we ask questions, we want to um, categorize it to different categories, and uh, yeah, try to, to gain a, a wide uh, point of view. Yeah. Oh, it's, um, 
It's you've you've preempted uh, my next question in, in the answer to this one, which is perfect. But the the the, the variety of methods that are evidenced that are featured in this volume bespeak the uh, variety of aspects of uh, Hindu culture or the Indian civilization that the Gita touches, whether it's sociology, whether it's politics, um, whether it's theology, you know, whether whether it's some sort of mystical seeking uh, life it's used in these various different ways and and hits these various different layers of the human experience. And so, of course, a critical introduction, rightfully, in my opinion, approaches the text from these various different dimensions. Um, uh, I was actually very, very happy to to, uh, be able to contribute to this myself uh, because sort of... No, I really was I, very much so. I was very, I was, I was honored and I was happy because I had this, this sort of, um, this piece of uh, narrative, narrative studies, right? What's, what does the world of the text say? How, how, this, this literary uh, um, analysis of the text. And yet, isn't it interesting that the literary, literary analysis corroborates things that we see elsewhere in philosophy uh, or theology of the text? I, I just find it interesting that folks can arrive at the central themes of the Gita from very different methodologies. I'm agreeing with everybody here. I mean, you, you touch in your own chapter, you touch uh, actually aesthetics. Uh, it could have been developed, I mean, that, 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 uh, that corresponds with Rasa aesthetics, emotional, uh, emotional uh, aspects too. And uh, I think it's very important. It's a very important contribution to the book, no doubt. Well, I muse I, because Part of how I read uh, Sanskrit narrative is through frames, uh, either formally through ring composition or certainly through framing devices, the opening frame that necessarily has a closing corollary at the end of the text, right? <laughs> so, uh, so I'm fascinated with the structure of the text and what the structure has to say about the text. So when, we, when I look at the table of contents of these 10 contributions, it starts off with you talking about structure and then it ends up with me talking about structure. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's wonderful. <laughs> What do you, maybe we'll say a little bit about some of the data, like what do you, what do you share in your article about the structure of the Bhagavad Gita and the ladders you alluded to before? Well, basically I uh, envisioned the structure of the Bhagavad Gita, I call it a three-story house model. I I do two things there. One thing is divide the Bhagavad Gita into uh, layers. Uh, There's a famous uh, cave Plato's cave, which has a similar idea of different, uh, in ancient philosophy, Greek philosophy, of uh, different layers of existence. Accordingly, some live in a cave and they have the experience of the cave and then someone goes out and experiences real life. And I think the Gita, or in general, Indian philosophy has, has this concept of a hierarchical reality. Not all systems, but some systems have this idea that reality is divided into layers. It's not, uh, it's not one reality, but there are different layers and different people live in different worlds, in parallel worlds, so to speak. So the first element of my structure is that three stories and trying to show that uh, we have one by another. We have this humanistic layer, humanistic layer, uh, basically the Vedic layer, which uh, uh, has a whole uh, set of uh, values about uh, humans 
living in this world and aspiring to prosper in this world, the whole Vedic uh, life with going to heaven, Svarga and Naraka and everything and sacrifices. But then we have the whole yogic uh, layer, which is completely different. The whole concept is different. The ontology is different. The, uh, I would say the uh, ethics are different. Uh, the, the human being is no longer a, 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 a complete term. It's broken. You have the, uh, the soul, if, never mind if it's uh, Atman or Jiva or Purusha, let's leave it aside. But you have the, 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 the self, and the self is different from the body and the mind and the senses. Uh, it's all uh, deconstructed into various elements and the gunas work there. And you have samsara, the self uh, transmigrating through a samsara. It's, it's a completely different world of uh, values, of, of ideas, of ontology, of ethics. The ethics is not anymore, no, no longer uh, aspiring to uh, prosper in this world. Rather, the ethics becomes something different, to be indifferent, to samatva, to be indifferent, to, to be equal in happiness and distress, loss of gain, victory and defeat, and so forth. So it's something different, and the ontology is different. So I try to show that. And then you have the level of moksha, which uh, can be either in the Advaita line, which is there in the book, or in the Vishishta Advaita, the, 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 the personal a version of moksha, of uh, bhakti, a love in the spiritual world. That's, again, it's different conversation. So I try to uh, highlight these three layers which exist one by the other, one by the other. And also there's flexibility. A person can be here and then move back there. Uh, there is a, uh, there's a flexibility in that. And then I try to show the ladder of action, which... As, as I told already in the previous, uh, the source of which is Vishwanath Chakravarti. Uh, he, he, he has it in his uh, Gita commentary, uh, 18th century Gita commentary. Uh, he, 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 he has these ideas and these are developed and he's also mentioned by uh, Joseph O'Connell and also Arvind Sharma mentioned the latter idea in his own chapter. Uh, and I developed that. And uh, according to that ladder, uh, one can a purify, one can a raise one's, one's consciousness, one's position, one's existential position a, through this ladder of action. And this ladder of action looks into one's internal position, into one's position of uh, uh, motives. What motivates one? Is it utilitarianism? Is it duty for its own sake? Is it yoga? Is it bhakti? So that is actually the internal state uh, the ladder looks into. And interestingly enough, uh, despite these various internal positions, the Gita is always dharmic. It always adheres to dharma. Whether one is in a lower utilitarian state, one should do one's dharma. And whether one is elevated to a higher state, one still has to adhere to dharma. He's also there in the third chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, where uh, Krishna says to Arjuna, look at myself, means Krishna looks at himself, says, I'm above, I'm, 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 I'm beyond dharma, I, 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 I'm liberated, I don't need to follow uh, dharma, I don't need to purify myself in any way, but he says, I do follow dharma, I do adhere to dharma 
in order to give example for a uh, locus sangra, which is uh, that term, which is the center for a Balgandadar Tilak, locus sangra. So Krishna emphasizes that in the third chapter. He says, I do it in order to give an example. So really the, that structure, uh, to my mind, can turn the Gita into a universal philosophy. I mean, that, that's my inspiration. I actually think that uh, the Gita has this potential. And I'm aware that my interpretation is one by one among many others. Uh, I'm, of course, aware of that. But my own interpretation is that the Gita is a, a work, a, a potentially a universal uh, philosophy. Actually, I, I have it in another article I, I published that the Gita is a potential philosophy for the 21st century for various reasons, because of its flexibility, multiculturalism, a mystical dimension, dimensions, because it adheres to Dharma. Dharma actually uh, is adhered to all over the Gita. There's no place where Krishna uh, tells Arjuna, you should be renounced, leave Dharma, don't do your duty. It's always doing the duty, performing one's duty, but from various mental or internal states, uh, which a change from person to person, uh, and even from moment to moment, a person can be on the mystical level and then uh, go back and uh, something may catch uh, his or her attention and they may be quite within the body, something happens and then they go back into meditations. So that uh, flexibility, I, I'm trying to show that in the structure, how, how that structure can encompass various states of consciousness uh, and and states of beings, and also the way uh, encourage uh, everyone to adhere to Dharma uh, within different states uh, in a very universal way, in a very flexible way, in a very encompassing way, which I think is the uh, the greatness uh, of the Gita and even the gunas, even that part of that. Because if one is in the lowest guna, in Tamaguna then one can go higher to a, a Rajas. Rajas is better. And if one is in Rajas, one can go to a Sattva, to that uh, goodness state. So even that, that goes even, that, 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 that makes a structure uh, even uh, wider. Now, let's just, let's just revisit this idea that you're putting forth just for one second. I have a follow-up question. But first, just um, for those listening to follow along, very succinctly, the three tiers are... What you the lowest one is the humanistic one, humanistic one. The second tier is the, uh, the, the yogic one, yogi, the, the world of yoga. And the highest one is moksha. So, uh, uh, I see the Gita so, interplay. Mo- the, moksha. The level is the humanistic level. The, if you go from bottom upward, it would be uh, the humanistic one, man in the world, human being in the world. The man then being that in the world, yes. would be the world of yoga. World of yoga would be like an intermediate floor, trying to detach oneself from the world and attach oneself to the highest state of uh, moksha, and eventually up there is uh, moksha in various forms of moksha. But uh, and so is, and uh, you use moksha the same way it's, it's classically used in terms of uh, yeah. uh, the result of liberation, right, or or, or atmanyana, right. Yeah, yeah, liberation, although, as I also point out in the book, and also uh, in my own chapter, and also in the book, there are various interpretations of that uh, state of moksha. And specifically, Shankara would get the Beta Vedanta type of moksha, merging, losing one's individuality, and Ramanuja, 
and Madhva, and that line, uh, and of course, Achintya Veda, 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 will get it differently, uh, a personal uh, liberation, uh, regain, uh, keeping one's uh, personality, personhood in the state of moksha. That is an internal uh, argument within the tradition. But I acknowledge both, both uh, types, moksha in its uh, Advaita and its impersonal version, moksha in its personal version. I, I acknowledge that there are various uh, ideas of moksha, but the main thing is moksha is the goal of the Gita, getting up there uh, to moksha, getting uh, from the humanistic level, uh, climbing up the ladder step by step in various ways. The ladder is not unified. There can be various ways to go about it. One can emphasize more yoga, one can emphasize more bhakti, uh, various ways. Uh, one can emphasize more jnana, uh, knowledge, philosophy, uh, cognition. But the goal is the same, it's going always up. That's, that is the goal. The goal is going up and up, raising one's consciousness, uh, elevating one uh, thoughts in, in, this, in this march from uh, human life to moksha. The goal, the goal to my mind is one, although it has various uh, ways and various, uh, uh, various people uh, can do it in different ways, but the goal, uh, the goal is there. I, I think this is very much in line with other uh, thinkers. I mean, all through the book, like you see Sri Aurobindo, he speaks of uh, integral yoga in terms of karma yoga, jnana yoga, and bhakti yoga. Uh, so he would say that uh, bhakti yoga would... Uh, it would cater more to the emotional uh, aspects of uh, one's being um, and, and jnana yoga for that philosophical and, uh, and, and, and karma yoga uh, would, uh, would, would, would make one progress through action. Uh, so these are, the, the ideas are uh, actually traditional. It's not uh, uh, something new or innovative, but uh, I do put it together, uh, these traditional ideas, I think. I think I'm not saying anything new but I am putting them in a frame. Uh, I'm trying to bring them all together. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, I know that my, my, my uh, structure is somewhat scholastic. I know it's a little rational. And one may ask, uh, did the ancient seers think about three stories? I'm not sure, but I think it's, it's a way to uh, conceptualize the Gita in this day and age, in, in, in our language. Is not uh, is not the enterprise here an academic one? Is not our our, our dharma, so to speak, to be scholastic? This is this is not this is not it's it's this is this is why it's a critical introduction to the Gita versus a dharma talk, right? <laughs> versus versus satsang, right? Yeah, uh, actually, you know, yeah, yeah, I like the subtlety of uh, what you say that actually we're doing a dharma. We're academics. Ah, oh, you got it. Exactly. We are just doing a dharma. Yeah. Oh, the, the dharma of the scholar. Exactly, the dharma of the scholars to be critical and scholastic. Exactly. That that's what we're doing. <laughs> so, uh, two questions. One, uh, which should I say first? Okay. So, I'll do the second one first. Let's entertain this idea of uh, universalization the universalizability of what we hear or see in the Gita. On the one hand, of course, no culture has a monopoly on wisdom. And of course, wisdom is like water. Everyone needs it across the globe, clearly, 
right? And it quenches the thirst of, of, of all kinds of folks. Um, but the question, on the one hand, certainly there's wisdom here for, for everyone that's part of the power of the Gita. On the other hand, the Bhagavad Gita is situated in a very, uh, in the history of world religions, in a very specific um, um, classical Hindu or classical Indian worldview, where the, the top tier, tier of your house, the moksha, is something that, uh, if I'm teaching world religions, for example, I may teach Abrahamic faiths in one fell swoop and talk about a common worldview, and then I may teach uh, Indian faiths and talk about a very different overarching worldview where the problem is escaping suffering and, and opting out, getting to the top of the house. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether or not that is attention to the universalizability of the Gita, or whether you think that there is an analog. I mean, how would these tiers apply to one, for example, uh, who is a, a, a modern, secular, Western citizen? Well, I, um, I would say that the Gita has also some non-religious and secular uh, aspects. Uh, and I mean the uh, natural aspects, uh, based on the Sankhya philosophy of the Gunas and the Yogis, the Yogic uh, uh, part. I mean, I think what happened, what, when the Gita came to the West, it was interpreted uh, interpreted in uh, Western terms. Uh, the West is monotheistic, I mean, non-secular, and therefore uh, Krishna's personality was emphasized as God, uh, the, the Gita's monotheistic uh, aspects were emphasized. However, the Gita also has these uh, Sankhya uh, trends, aspects, which are secular, basically. There's not necessarily any devotion there in the Sankhya. When you discuss the, the Gunas, uh, there's not really devotion there. It's an ontological uh, categorization of the world, and it's a good, uh, it's a good uh, secular philosophy, really. So I think that the Gita also has these aspects, and uh, I... I, I, I uh, I published a few years ago a volume on the comparative Indian and Chinese philosophy. I was working in Hong Kong and we had an AR panel on the, the Bhagavad Gita and Chinese thought. And I was uh, presenting the Bhagavad Gita's natural uh, uh, components, uh, the gunas. Uh, I consider the gunas to be close to yin and yang in many ways. Uh, and the Tao, I mean, I, 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 I offered a Chinese reading of the Gita and the respondent uh, to that panel, that was uh, Professor Laurie Patton. And uh, she said, well, that's very interesting that you're highlighting all these, all these uh, aspects of the Gita, which can be considered to be secular. I mean, there's no, there's no uh, real uh, a focus on Ishvara, on Krishna, on Bhakti, but the Gita can also be read in that way. Uh, and, and I said, yes, uh, when the Gita came to the West, uh, naturally, the theistic aspects were uh, emphasized because the West speaks in these terms, monotheistic God, devotion, praising God, and so forth, and specifically Christianity. But then uh, the Gita has these other aspects. When you bring the Gita with, in, in the, the Gita in a dialogue with Judaism, you'll find that uh, the Dharma it would be would correspond to the law to halacha halacha is similar to dharma the, the Jewish comes the flow and actually I did another book called Dharma and Halacha uh, emphasizing that comparative Hindu Jewish studies and emphasizing uh, these uh, aspects 
So uh, the Gita is rich, and when you bring the Gita into dialogue with the Chinese, uh, of course, secular thought, Confucian thought, you can see all these categories of duty, of dharma, of the gunas, uh, of balance, uh, which are non-Western, and uh, I think they they would uh, be inspiring for a secular person also. I mean, Gita, Gita is rich. Uh, it, it, it can inspire someone who is inclined to philosophy, uh, someone who is inclined to religion, to religious emotions, in worship and devotion, uh, but also uh, to those who look for a good uh, humanistic secular philosophy. That's, that's the way I see it, yeah. Well, this, uh, it's certainly multifaceted and it has the power to, to captivate people on different levels. Um, this, perhaps it's a conversation for another day, but you know, the, the question of theism being, uh, uh, the question of, of, of sort of the theistic reception of the Gita being a function of, of its, 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 its transplanting it to the West. And there's a question of like Madhvacharya or Ramanuja, or obviously there's, there's, there's a lot of texture in that that we can pack for another day. Um, one thing that kind of strikes me um, I think of Hinduism as the tension between two very different worldviews or ideologies, the household and the renouncer, or sort of the Vedic ethos and the, 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 the yogic ethos or the ascetic ethos, uh, such that clearly it's, the Vedic ethos is, it has won out in terms of uh, the mundane world and how we relate to society and caste and and dharma in a in a perspectival sense and certainly the ascetic ethos has won out in terms of what we supremely value this this ethos of detachment this 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 this, this lofty um, theology of, of of transcendence or self realization and and I you know I really think of it as this double helical structure that's how I think of Hinduism broadly speaking and I think certain texts. Um, I think the Mahabharata, for example, its job is to spin this this walking contradiction of 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 of, of, of different religiosities. So when I hear your three tiered house, really I think of that first tier as this, this sort of Vedic platform or sort of uh, the, the individual in the world, and then and then it's very practical, right? You you know a butcher has a dharma, right? A scholar has a dharma, right? Uh, we want our, our we want the armed forces to be armed, right? They need violence is, 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 is needed to protect the state, you know? Um, uh, and and, 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 and the, the, the second tier for me is sort of this the second strand of the double helix of Dharma, where it's um, otherworldly. It's geared towards something interior. It's geared towards transcendence. It, 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 as you say, it ultimately leads to, to, to moksha uh, or, or the apex or the attic of this house, if you will. Um, and maybe you can comment on that a little bit. I know I'm sort of, uh, I don't mean to uh, appropriate what you're saying for my thinking or to project the way I think of it onto what you're saying, but I sort of see an analog between what I call this double helix and and what you call this this multi-tiered house. Would you agree with that? And this is an open-ended question. Uh, I, I very much agree with that. When you speak, I, I think in the same terms, that you have this, these layers uh, side by side, that the Vedic, a layer is a very clearly the humanistic layer. The uh, self-understanding of the Vedic person is a complete, a whole human being. The, the body is not an object of a, a contempt. 
the human being is a is a whole is a whole a term. It's not to be deconstructed. This the construction comes through the yoga world of view, but the Gita builds bridges between them. That's also very interesting. For example, the Gita considers the four varnas in terms of the gunas, which is very interesting. That the four varnas. Uh, Brahmin, Chaturas, Vaishas, and Shudras, they are described in the 18th chapter in terms of the gunas. I mean, you take the gunas, which are part of a uh, Sankhya Yoga philosophy, basically second tier, and you apply them to, a, to the Vedic concept. The Gita makes this conception, uh, this combination, which is very interesting. Very interesting, uh, uh, I would say, explanation of the, of the varnas in terms of Sankhya Yoga um, philosophy, in terms of the Gunas. The Brahmins are more Sattvic and the uh, uh, Chakras are more Rajasic and so forth. So uh, the Gita does make these combinations which allow it all uh, to reside together in a harmony. Uh, one, can, one can adhere to one's Dharma also as a Yogi, it's Karma Yoga in its best, uh, in its best way. So uh, I, I, I agree completely with you that, that, that the Vedic is the humanistic layer and the yogic layer is uh, for detachment and for, uh, and for uh, struggling with the mind and, uh, and getting oneself yoked to spirituality. And all these live side by side in the Gita. So on the one hand, uh, for uh, methodological uh, purposes, I separate them because to discuss them, I have to look at them separate and saying, this is one, this is two, this is three. But really, in real life, they, uh, they converge, they mix together, they, 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 they work together, they exist together, and a person moves between them, sometimes in a more yogic, sometimes a more humanistic way. And that's the thing that greatest the Gita. But again, methodologically speaking, I would have to separate them to be able to discuss their uh, qualities, their merits, and uh, so forth, uh, separately. But that is a... A methodological uh, uh, step, but really they are they are quite uh, mingled, they are quite uh, uh, mixed, they are quite uh, uh, they live in harmony with each other. But yes, I I I I I see your point and I like it. I, I agree with you. Sure, sure. I'll say it just so happens that in this case I'm a, a, a contributor to the to the work, so I'll say a quick sentence or two about um, the article, the the chapter that I contributed which is the final one, it's uh, chapter 10, uh, Arjuna, uh, Arjuna and Achyuta, uh, the import of epithets in the Bhagavad Gita. And, and it's sort of um, really drawing on my penchant towards looking at the structure of a narrative for clues on how to read the narrative. The assumption being that the, the, architect, the architects of the text, uh, the, the authors, uh, those who are, uh, whether it was inspired or by by humans or that which is beyond the humans, nevertheless, human hands <laughs> penned it, so to speak. And so um, in human ingenuity uh, crafted it. This is Smriti, it was remembered. And so uh, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, you know, in our volume, you're the first uh, contribution, I'm the last contribution. We're both talking about structure. Um, but if you, if, if you look at the epithets in the Bhagavad Gita, Right, 
the the ways in which uh, you know God is named or Krishna is addressed. You know, you know, you can have an individual and you can call that individual professor so and so or mom or they're a citizen according to the government or a subject or there are various aspects of of, of an individual based on you know the, the, the situations. And so, you know, in fine uh, Hindu form, Krishna has a number of epithets by which he's called to Bhagavad Gita and. It is my sort of observation and or assertion that the epithets are not merely because of a certain uh, prosodic need, a certain metric need, like we need two syllables, one guru, one baghu, one heavy, one light, because that'll satisfy the needs of anushtuptanda. I mean, there's a number of epithets that could satisfy the needs of the of the verse. But what I what I'm saying is, look, no, they pick certain epithets for certain reasons at certain points in the text. And what I say is, if you look at the very first epithet, it's Achuta. Of all the times that Krishna is addressed in the Bhagavad Gita, he's called Achuta in the very first time. And guess what? If you look at the very last time he's addressed, where Arjuna says, you've dispelled my doubts. I'm done. I'm fully baked. I've been transformed. I'm convinced. I'll sign. Where do I sign? Let's move on. He calls him Achuta, the unfallen one. And more than that, not just the beginning, the Alpha and the Omega, in, in sort of what I notice in, in texts like the Devi Mahatmya is that there's a ring composition where there's a beginning, there's an end, and there's a thing in the middle you're supposed to be paying attention to. So, so for example, the middle episode of the Devi Mahatmya is the Mahisha Sura Mardini episode. It's the most iconographically celebrated episode, you know, in Hinduism, right? And so there's one more time where they pay attention, where they use the word Achuta. And the one time they use it is right after the Vishvarupa. You couldn't get, you couldn't, you, there couldn't be a greater apex to the aspects of, of the divine than the Vishvarupa. And he's like, look, Achyuta, I just, I can't, you know, just give me my mundane eyes back. I'm, I'm sorry I asked for this wish. Like, just, you know, that was a great trip. We need to get sober now. <laughs> I can't deal with this anymore. So Achyuta at the beginning, Achyuta at the end, Achyuta when he's showing his, his, his divine cosmic form. So, that's sort of, I think, very important to the text. I think the fact that that's conscious or structured, I think, to my mind, is self-evident. And then the, where, 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 the, where the interpretive piece comes in, well, you know, okay, fine, I, I buy what you're saying. It means something, fine. What does it mean? Why? Why that epithet in the, why is it saying that that is the epithet that is cradling all the epithets? Why is that the frame of all the epithets? Why? Because um, 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 uh, what's, what's Krishna's job? Krishna's like, Utishta, Utishta, get the hell up. His whole goal is to render Arjuna upstanding, morally upstanding, physically upstanding, spiritually upstanding, emotionally upstanding. And why can he do that? Because Krishna is Achyuta. He's unfallen. He's unfallible. He's permanently upstanding. And so whether you buy my interpretation or not, I think uh, you can nevertheless see that the the, the, the one hopes that you can see that the placement of that epithet is obviously conscious in the text. And that's sort of what I, what I talk about in my article. Thank you very much for that. Oh, no, no, thank you. Thank you for, thank you for providing uh, a, a home <laughs> for that. I had that idea churned out during my dissertating days and I shelved it because I just had to follow the logic of my methodology for the PhD for this, for the Bhagavad Gita. I shelved it. I'm like, I don't, I don't, 
I'm, you know, I'm not going to write a book on the Gita. What am I going to do with this? I shelved it. And then I think... <laughs> all, that, right? so all kinds of materials you write, and then we hopefully publish them here and there. That's life. And, uh, and, and, and a nice shelf came along uh, to showcase it. Um, it's great for us. Great for us. Yeah, what, what's... Uh, um, Oh, there's so much we could do, but you know, we'll, we'll wrap up shortly. I know you're, you're tight for time as well. But what, thinking of the volume overall, okay, we've talked about some of the content, some of the methodologies, uh, sort of the contribution to scholarship. Um, was there anything that really you found quite surprising or illuminating or, or stood out to you as, as the editor of this? What, what was impressed upon you uh, putting this together? Uh, well, first of all, uh, it was. It was easy. People uh, know the materials, and uh, I, 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 it wasn't difficult to find the authors for very interesting uh, topics. So that that was very encouraging. And um, maybe the most surprising article was Joseph O'Connor's article, which uh, I found actually he passed away, of course. And also the book is dedicated uh, to him and to Professor Narasimha Chari, uh, Professor O'Connor. He was my uh, both were my uh, professors at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies uh, some 20 years ago. Uh, I, I learned with both with Professor O'Connor and with Professor Narasimhachari. So the book um, is dedicated to both of them. And I think Professor O'Connor's uh, chapter is unique in that he highlights a point which is not really known. I don't think that point of the, um, I would say, the, uh, the debate between uh, the debate within the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition as to the, to the Gita. In the introduction, I quote uh, Bankin Chaturzi's uh, Anandamat, translated by Judas Lipner, and I highlight the same point, uh, which, which is a question whether devotees, people of devotion, are actually committed to Dharma and actually welfare. Uh, welfare. Uh, and in, in a wider sense, a karma working in the world. And that, that also comes uh, in Nandamad by Bankim Chandra Chatterjee, and as I mentioned, I, I quote him. So in the preface. So I think that chapter by Joseph O'Connell is specifically interesting because that point is not so much known. Other points that Ramanuja and, uh, and Shankara diverge, we know that, it's, that this is something known, or that uh, Gandhi and Tilak diverge in their positions, we know that. But this point which uh, uh, Joseph O'Connor brought, Professor O'Connor, about this uh, ambiguity, this uh, ambivalency within the tradition uh, in, in its relation to karma and dharma, that was uh, for me a surprise. I was very happy to find that and to, to, to publish that uh, in, in this year. Fantastic, and just so our listeners can understand, did he contribute that to the volume um, towards the end of his life, or is it something you discovered thereafter? I discovered that. He published that in the Junior Vaishnava study some 20 years ago. And uh, I, I found that, and of course, I asked permission from uh, for, uh, Stephen uh, Rosen. His spouse. Yeah, yeah, of course. And she was very happy about uh, me publishing that, and of course, from Junior of the Vaishnava studies. But yeah, he published that around uh, the year 2000, from 20 years ago. And that was, we adopted that and, and republished that, yeah, that paper. Fascinating uh, and wonderful. Uh, this, um, the other thing I'll, I'll make mention of is I didn't, I may have once knew, but didn't realize you also had a connection 
or history with uh, the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. I'm not sure if you know, but I've just started teaching there. You're a teacher there, you're a fellow there. And I, I, uh, I, 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 I was in the first group of students. We started in 1999. It was, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, we were the first uh, students. It was uh, Kenneth uh, Valpe, Ravi Gupta, uh, Manjari Talent and myself in 1999, the first group of students. And uh, yes, I studied there, uh, yeah, for the next uh, four years or so, till uh, 2003 or so. That's fascinating. So 20 years later, uh, I've, uh, <laughs> this podcast, I tell you, I ended up discovering their online platform. Of course, I was floored because I thought, wow, if I was still doing my, my training, I, I mean, if I was an undergrad or a continuing study sort of learner, I, this would be like a treasure trove. So I sent some random message to the OCHS to say, no, do you want to plug on the podcast? Like, can we help you to, you know, imagine the people who listen to the podcast are the people that you're serving. And he's like, sure. And I had Nick Sutton come on the podcast to talk about the continuing studies program in his publication of uh, Yoga Sutras and, uh, and uh, Bhagavad Gita. He also had a new translation of the Bhagavad Gita. I said, that was cool. And it was from that every month, there was a different layer of involvement. And then would you like to tutor for us? Sure, why not? <laughs> so I'm tutoring some courses for them. Would you like to be on our course development board? Sure, why not? Would you like to speak at our uh, weekend school? Sure, why not? I'm just uh, currently organizing their next weekend school, um, which is going to be on yoga. It should be fun. So clearly, clearly they decided to keep me. <laughs> Who knows in what capacity? But it's it's a it's a really really rich space because it's it it does good critical work that's not reductionistic and it attracts people who also have uh, who also have a personal relationship to Hinduism or maybe seeking on a personal path and nevertheless they can get good solid content so it's interesting that we have that 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 piece in common as well um, now yeah. before we go yeah before we go too far there's another a, a Canadian connection there besides a uh, professor O'Connell, there was Professor Klaus Klostermeyer, who, uh, who was also the academic director when I came there. Uh, so he's also Canadian, and uh, he also supervised me for a while. Yeah? So um, actually more than a while. So yes, it's all, all there in the OCHS. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Mysterious are the ways of karma indeed. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so before we go too far down the rabbit hole of, 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 of uh, institutional nostalgia, um, I want to thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Was there anything else you wanted to share before we sign off? Everything's fine. I thank you very much. It was a great uh, interview, and I hope that the book will actually be very useful. That you will read it and study from it. And uh, hopefully we'll even uh, one day do more books because the Gita is so rich. So more sure. <laughs> well, when you when you come back with the next one, uh, I know of a place where you can have a podcast. <laughs> you can, uh, great. So thank you very much. Uh, for those of you out there listening, um, uh, if you're interested in the Bhagavad Gita, if you're studying it for your personal growth, uh, in particular, if you're studying it through an academic paradigm, uh, if you're teaching it, this may well be an excellent resource for you. Um, it is published by Rutledge uh, this very year, 2020. Uh, it's called quite aptly the Bhagavad Gita, a critical introduction, edited by my guest today, Dr. Itamar Theodore. Until next time, uh, keep uh, keep reading, keep listening, stay safe, 
and keep contemplating the epithets of Krishna. 